This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Gist is sponsored by The Great Courses. Engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Fundamentals of Photography. Right now, get 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, February 9th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Snow. Wow. Snow sucks. Notice how all the beautiful songs about snow are Christmas carols that mention snow, or just not even Christmas carols, but we sing them around Christmas, you know, walking in a winter wonderland and Jack Frost nipping at your nose. They're Christmas carols because winter has just started and snow seems cute and novel. By February, snow is dreary. Snow is door. So we don't sing songs to it, we curse it. We invent terms, terms like black ice. Black ice, it's not black at all, it's just ice. If what you see underneath is black, then it's black ice, like asphalt is black. And then the inky blackness intrudes upon all our meteorological phrasings. Like this bit of weatherly wordsmanship. This type of weather system is called a pineapple express. It's an atmospheric river of water that funnels precipitation from the Hawaiian Islands right here to California. Ah, an atmospheric river of water, as opposed to the usual type of river, which is, uh, yeah, also water. So that's what a pineapple express is. It's a river of water, no wait. It's a plume of tropical moisture from south of Hawaii that works its way a couple thousand miles across the Pacific Ocean, and sometimes it slams into the West Coast. Not a river of water, a plume of moisture, which is, I think, perfectly synonymous with river of water, also synonymous with... A jet stream that starts near the pineapple-growing territory of the Hawaiian Islands. Some call it a rain train with a final and potentially devastating destination in the western U.S., So it's a rain train, a jet stream, a drizzle-rizzle. It is really bored, bored weathermen who are simultaneously championing a, some would say, criminally underrated film from the Rogan Franco oeuvre. But really, what's the term that they were doing? Oh yeah, they were making shit up. How the Bostonians would trade their horrible existence over the last 17 days when 61, a record 61 inches have accumulated for a little pineapple express. Nope, no semi-tropical dampenings, no cleverly branded rain phenomenon. Phenomenon, just in Boston, piles and piles of snow. To quote one Bostonian, how do you like them pineapples? On the show today, I spiel about a place where it's not even winter, South America. And to say they might be giant song debut, I will tell you the title now. Let me tell you about my operation. 
Oh, I can't wait. That could go in lots of directions. We convene a vexillology corner, and we talk about the phenomenon of Union Jack jackings. But first, they say justice is slow, and they haven't even considered the International Criminal Court. If you're a proponent of international justice, true justice, then the International Criminal Court, The Hague, is a frustrating thing. It's the embodiment of the ideal of international justice. It's also, at times, a festering symbol of just how elusive justice is. Infighting, bureaucracy, perhaps an overly idealistic structure have stymied the court. The court has recently issued verdicts in such cases as the Congo and Cote d'Ivoire. They've started looking into the Lord's Resistance Army that operates in Uganda, but convictions are often hard to come by. Now, let's for a second also talk about the cases of Slobodan Milosevic and Radovan Karadzic. These were not prosecuted by the International Criminal Court, but a criminal tribunal that just looked at Yugoslavia. But Milosevic's trial lasted five years and was never completed because he died. And Radovan Karadzic has been on trial for over five years, and we might get a verdict within a year. Why is justice so slow and so sclerotic internationally? Joining me now is David Kay, clinical professor of law at UC Irvine. He's also United Nations Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression. Hello, Professor Kay. Hi there. The court has been funded to the tune of a billion dollars since its inception. What has the world gotten for that money? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And if if we sort of looked at justice by a ledger sheet, I'm not sure we would uh, be that happy with it. Uh, Although, of course, the United States is not putting any money into it because we're not a member of the court. I think there are a few things that we could say that we're getting out of it. For one thing, the ICC and the ICTY, the Yugoslavia Tribunal and the Tribunal for Rwanda that preceded the ICC, have created kind of a a normative global expectation that when there uh, is violence in armed conflict, there will be some response to it. I mean, these courts have really put accountability for mass atrocities on the agenda. And You know, if you look back before the mid-1990s when the ICTY really got going, the idea that people would actually be held accountable for their crimes uh, in times of armed conflict was fanciful. I mean, some may say it's fanciful still today, and we can get to why that is, but, you know, it was 50 years between the Nuremberg trials, which were set up after World War II, and the creation of the Yugoslavia Tribunal in in the mid-1990s. So, you know, people had good reason not to think about accountability. And now, you know, you open up the paper anytime there's violence, whether it's Ukraine, Syria, Central African Republic, Mali, you name it, people are talking about accountability. And that's, I think that's a a really important sort of step forward that people don't necessarily acknowledge. Why are the Nuremberg trials not seen as the example? Why is the International Criminal Court with its slow wending of justice seen as the way to go? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a good question. The Nuremberg trials, you know, were quick. I mean, they were, they started, they were chartered, and they were finished within, you know, basically 15 months, less than a year and a half. I mean, of course, there's always been this sense of the Nuremberg trials that they were victor's justice. I mean, they were set up by the Allies in order to try Nazis and to try, you know, Japanese war criminals. The Allies were occupying Germany, were occupying Japan. It was easy to get access to evidence. It was easy to get access to defendants, I mean, relatively easy. From that perspective, it's, it's a great model. 
the problem is, you know, with the ICC is that it doesn't have any of that kind of support. You know, you think about the way the ICC operates. You know, it's operating in countries over which it has no enforcement authority. It's not like there's some UN or ICC police force that they, they can go in and enforce a subpoena for documents. There's no police force that can go arrest Omar al-Bashir, you know, the president of Sudan, who's been, uh, who was indicted essentially by the ICC seven or eight years ago. You know, it lacks what Nuremberg enjoyed. The kind of comparisons that people want to make back to, you know, why was Nuremberg such swift justice, um, you know, really don't acknowledge the the different circumstances that we're in today. Well, then you get to the structure of it. This is a court designed by diplomats. But I wanted to ask you this. About three, four years ago, you wrote an article for Foreign Affairs, Who's Afraid of the International Criminal Court? You laid a lot of its problems at the feet of the chief prosecutor, Luis Moreno Ocampo. Since then, the court has issued some convictions, actually had some trials with some results. Is the court trending in a better direction than it was even a few years ago? Yeah, I think so, but it it doesn't look like it from the outside. So the current prosecutor uh, is, you know, a very eminent jurist named Fatou Bensouda from the Gambia. She was the deputy prosecutor under Moreno Campos. She knows how the place works, and I think she saw the ways in which it didn't work. And she's doing some things that I think over the short term make the court look ineffective so, for example, she you know, basically withdrew the case against Kenyatta, the president of Kenya, who was indicted, crimes alleged to have taken place during the election in 2007-2008 in Kenya. There was a tremendous amount of witness intimidation there. I think she understood that there was a certain amount of overreach, although that's, that's not the reason that she's putting forward uh, for withdrawing these cases. But I think what you see, if you really peel back from the headlines, is you see an OTP, the Office of the Prosecutor, kind of retrenching and trying to go back to, you know, where are the cases where we can actually make a difference and to focus in on cases that are provable and that are not just politically high profile. So the Palestinian Authority will join the court on uh, April 1st. It's recently been announced in America and in Israel. This is uh, viewed with at least skepticism. People are worried that they will use the court. A world community generally aligned against Israel. The court will be used to pursue uh, Palestinian grievances. I look at it and say, given how sclerotic the court is, maybe you don't have anything to worry about. (laughs) Right, right. So I tend to agree that people shouldn't be that worried about it. I mean, look, I'd say two things. You know, one is the way the court looks at its investigations. It's not as if Palestine or the Palestinian Authority is able to say to the court, look, we want you to just investigate Israeli behavior in the West Bank and Gaza. That's not how it works. They'll refer a case or a situation, and the court will look at behavior on all sides. So that means, sure, they'll look at Israeli behavior. And by the way, that means not just looking at the behavior, but whether there's been any domestic accountability in Israel. So if Israel has actually pursued cases and pursued them in a genuine way, not some kind of sham way, then the court will actually not pursue it. There's this principle called complementarity, where basically the court says, if this is happening at the domestic level, then we're not going to put our hands into it. That, that's one thing to keep in mind, that the, the outcome could actually be an ICC investigation 
that actually, you know, maybe it would bring cases against Israelis, but I think it's just as likely that it would bring cases against Hamas uh, for indiscriminate attacks on Israel. So, you know, there's sort of a, um, from the Palestinian perspective, I think they see the value in injecting the sense that there should be accountability and justice, and I totally respect that. But at the same time, they don't have control over the outcome. The concern that I would have is that there would be reaction in Washington that would say, oh my God, there's a, a case against Israelis, you know, having to do with Gaza, we're going to have to, you know, go back to the old position that we had during the Bush years of opposing the court from soup to nuts. We're going to oppose everything the court does. We're not going to grant it legitimacy and all that. I think that would be a real shame and would really be kind of shooting ourselves in the foot because we'd be losing this actor that actually is working in parallel with with U.S. policy as well. David Kay is clinical professor of law at UC Irvine and a U.N. special rapporteur for freedom of expression. Thank you. Mike, thanks for having me. With digital cameras, smartphones, and social media, so many of us are getting into photography. But what do we really know about it? How can we become experts? I'll tell you how. It's a course, one of the great courses, and it's called Fundamentals of Photography. I was checking this out this weekend. I gave it to a friend of mine because he's bought a new camera, and he's like, this is good. I could use 38% of what this camera offers. So if you spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a camera or photo equipment, why not spring for a much less expensive course to get all you can out of this camera? It is taught by a professional photographer and a National Geographic fellow, Joe Sartori. And he doesn't just tell you about the settings on the camera or technology, he really has a great way of telling you how to see like a photographer would see, how to frame pictures. He talks about lighting. He talks about composition. The great courses have over 500 courses, including history, art, science. You can watch them on DVD, on CD, streaming, digital download, or there's an app. Here's our offer. For a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for just listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including The Fundamentals of photography get up to 80 percent off the original price order today thegreatcourses.com slash gist that's thegreatcourses.com slash gist our interest has not flagged but our interest is in flags lots of flag news we round it up we round it up in a corner as contradictory as that also sounds it's Vexillology Corner. Our current Vexillologist, the study of flags, is Ted Kay. Ted is the past editor of Raven, a scholarly journal of Vexillology. He used to be treasurer of the North American Vexillological Association. Now he edits the newsletter for the Portland Flag Association. Hello, Ted. Howdy. Let's go traipsing around the world, and our first stop shall be Fiji. Big flag news in Fiji. Are they really scrapping the old flag, a light blue field with a Union Jack in one corner and a very busy shield in the other? That's the announcement yesterday from the Prime Minister. Vareke Bain Imarama, I think, and Bain Imarama took uh, power in a coup, and sometimes these guys like to remake history based on their own aspirations. But he does say it's been 45 years since independence, time for a new flag. Right. The current prime minister actually took power in a coup in 2006, but he was elected on his own in September of this past year. So he is officially the elected prime minister of Fiji, and he's announced that the 
current flag of Fiji that was adopted at independence in 1970 will be replaced this year in time for the 45th anniversary of independence. Now, from a design standpoint, what do you think of Fiji's old flag? Because so many, many design elements, which I know you think is a little busy. Fiji's current flag, as you said, is a light blue field with a Union Jack in the corner and the shield from Fiji's coat of arms in the fly. It's one of only four nations that have the Union Jack in the fly now. The others are Australia, New Zealand, and Tuvalu. And there are a lot of protectorates. I mean, if you go around, you'll see the Cayman Islands has that. But these are all essentially parts, broadly defined, of the Commonwealth. Fiji is its own country, but still with the Union Jack. Well, I want to I be clear. The Commonwealth is actually the group of nations that once formed part of the British Empire. And Fiji, I believe, is still part of the Commonwealth. But specifically, holdings of the Crown or of the United Kingdom current colonies like the Falkland Islands and and some of the other overseas protectorates are still flying flags with the Union Jack, but that's appropriate because they are part of the United Kingdom. Fiji has not been part of the United Kingdom since 1970, and so it's appropriate for it to consider taking the Union Jack off of its flag. And also I would add that the shield itself has many things on it. I know heraldry and vexillology are interrelated, but this shield just has, it has the lion of England. It has many, it has a banana, lots of symbols. (laughs) Yes, the the shield from the coat of arms uh, has a red St. George's cross. That's a red cross on white. And above it is a lion in gold. And in the four quarters on white are a palm tree, sugarcane, bananas, and a dove holding an olive branch. Yeah. That's quite busy. That's <laughs> r- routine for a coat of arms. But it's usually not a very good idea to put a coat of arms as a symbol on a flag. The best way to convert a coat of arms to a flag is to take what's on the shield and spread it out across the entire field of the flag. And some great flags do that. For example, the flag of the state of Maryland. Yes. And if I had to describe the expression on the lion's face, looks a little like one of the animals in the Flintstones cartoon where they cut to him and he's like, it's a living. That, that lion does not look that happy. All right. Now, if we start in Fiji, mid-Fiji even, and went due south for about 1,600 miles, we would hit the East New Zealand town of uh, Gisborne, maybe Gisborne. Anyway, New Zealand, big flag news. What's going on there? New Zealand is also undertaking to take the Union Jack off of its flag, and the Prime Minister has announced a two-part process, two referendas, that will take place, one, to choose among possible successors to the New Zealand flag. Two that are in in great contention are the silver fern on black and the silver fern on a blue background and the southern cross coming from the current flag on that flag as well. So there are two designs and some others may be uh, part of the first referendum to choose choose the challenger. And the second referendum will be to ask New Zealanders whether they prefer to keep the old flag or to replace it with the challenger. And how's the polling going on that? Have you been uh, studying the early returns? Well, one of the challenges to the silver fern flag, of the silver fern in silver or white on a black background, is currently it looks a lot like the ISIS flag. And people don't like 
white symbols on black flags right now. However, that is truly a, a, a national symbol. It's a symbol of their national team. And the silver fern is to New Zealand as the maple leaf is to Canada. And it's appropriate for the silver fern in some way to be on a national flag for New Zealand. Ironically, this month is the 50th anniversary of Canada adopting the maple leaf flag. So there's something to cheer about there as well. Yeah, and that is a beautiful, iconic leaf front and center, as you say, just like New Zealand. And yet the Canadians don't seem to be going that crazy about what is widely regarded as one of the best designed flags in the world. There hasn't been a lot of celebration in Canada about the 50th anniversary, and that may simply be a, uh, an indication of the nature of Canadians. They say, we have our flag. We like it. We don't need to have celebrations the way the Americans do. We just fly our flag. I, ironically, the flag itself was a subject of a lot of debate when it was first adopted. It, too, was replacing a flag that had the Union Jack in the corner and a coat of arms in the fly, and the most vociferous opponents of the new flag were veterans groups who said, we fought under that flag, my friends died under that flag, don't change the national flag. But the new flag, with a, a red bar on one side and a white square with a maple leaf in the middle and a red bar on the other side, uh, won the day, and the joke goes that the veterans groups were won over when somebody pointed out that there was a bar at each end of the flag. <laughs> yeah, serving uh, Moosehead. Ted Kay, past editor of Raven. He is our resident scholar in the vexillology corner. Thank you, Ted. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And now the spiel. To the south we go. So as you know, here at The Gist, we go far afield. I like Botswana. I've covered coup attempts in Equatorial Guinea. We mostly cover Asia with Jonah Blank of Rand. Not just the good Sri Lanka stuff, all of Asia. But South America, these days I am focused on South America. Write The Gist name Edward Mujica as Gentleman of the Year. Mujica, president of Uruguay, has less than three weeks left in that position. The New Republic is out with a critical assessment of Mujica's presidency. Quotes a lot of academics and critics of Mujica, but it fell flat because it lacked empirical evidence. Like the fact that Mujica still has 65% approval and that only 17% of Uruguayans were negative about the state of the economy. I had to research those facts myself. So that was a knock against the article. But if what you're really looking for is South American Michigas of an entirely unequivocal nature, I give you Venezuela. So it seems to have fallen to us here at the gist to be the chronicler of President Nicolas Maduro's war on retail. Remember in the 80s, David Horowitz, not the former radical, but David Horowitz, the consumer advocate, and he hosted a show called Fight Back. Well, on Fight Back, if you supplied a tip, a tip-off to a rip-off, you got a t-shirt and a copy of the Fight Back theme song. That is nothing to what Nicolas Maduro gets you if you tip him off to a rip-off. He gets the entire chain. He arrests everyone who he thinks is ripping you off. So last week, we told you that he jailed owners of a popular pharmacy. Now the government has simply taken over a grocery store. Dia a dia. Maduro accused it of, quote, waging war against the population. Do the 
the lines at this grocery store have anything to do with plunging oil prices in this almost entirely oil-dependent nation? No, not according to President Maduro. President Maduro, who we last described as wearing a camouflage hat and a tracksuit the color of the Venezuelan flag. Colors, we should say. In the article I read about Dia a Dia, Maduro was riding in the back of an open-roof car wearing a sash the colors of the Venezuelan flag. So he could easily transist into a contestant in the Mr. World competition. It shows readiness and resolve should the country require him to be on a pageant footing. But at least Maduro is working hard with these terrible solutions to shortages that he pretty much caused himself. In Argentina, the biggest news there is the former prosecutor who maybe committed suicide, perhaps was killed in an attempt to silence what he was looking into, which was reportedly Argentinian complicity in a 1994 bombing of a Buenos Aires Jewish center. This is the biggest story in Argentina. What I found interesting was that the investigator looking into this death, Viviana Fine, had announced that she will be going on vacation from February 18th to March 5th. Now, she since was shamed into canceling that vacation. But for a while, she had dug in her heels and she had justified this vacation, February 18th to March 5th, that's 16 days off, as saying, oh, it's only 10 working days. So her way to assuage this on-edge country is to say, hey, it's not like I'm working on weekends anyway. But then I looked at a calendar from February 18th to March 5th, only two weekends four days, but two weekends fall in there. So where is she getting? It's only 10 working days. And then I realized she was counting a couple of days off for carnival. She was going to take off for carnival instead of investigating the biggest story in Argentina. Anyway, the vacation is canceled, maybe because she heeded the words of presidential secretary Anibal Fernandez, who said, quote, it would be wrong for her to put on a bathing suit in the middle of an ongoing investigation. So here the gist, we will keep our eyes open, we will keep our ears perched, and we will vow not to wear a bathing suit, be it trunks or a two-piece, during our ongoing South American investigations. And that's it for today's show. We had a light dusting of just producer Andrea Salenzi, followed by just intern Claire Tennisgetter, the size of golf balls, but not the same dimplage. So dress in layers and remember what Ursine meteorologist Joel Meyer advises, breathable fabrics that allow you the freedom to urinate, defecate, scratch, rub, and bite trees. We'll start off with Andy Bowers during daylight hours, turning to executive producer of Slate Podcasts by dusk. One way to listen to us is to go to iTunes. Give us a review if you like us in iTunes. You could get our show emailed to you every day. Sign up for that at slate.com slash gist email. Yo is an app. It's a cool app, or at least it's a simple app. When you go there, you sign up for podcast and we'll tell you when we're ready. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. If you like the free slate podcasts you've been hearing, would like more in subject areas that you like and less in subject areas you don't, we ask you to fill out this survey. Go to slate.com slash survey, or you could even just click the links we've provided in the show notes for this episode, slate.com slash survey, or click links in the show notes. So the Sopranos TV show said, remember when is the lowest form of conversation. I have often said there is really only one form of conversation worse than let me tell you about my dream, and it's let me tell you about my wide receivers. Yes, the dreaded fantasy football conversation. But there are other terrible conversation starters, words you don't want to hear, like let me tell you about my vacation, or let me tell you about my daughter's science project. But now, 
They Might Be Giants has their own entry. You can call They Might Be Giants and dial a song tomorrow. That's 844-386-6962. Or right here, right now, hear the debut of the They Might Be Giants song, Let Me Tell You About My Operation. Très bon. Très bon.